I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. Our show today, Passion Against Extremes. to Tensions by Charles Mingus, recorded in 1959 and released in 1960 on the album Blues and Roots. About the album, Mingus wrote that it's unusual because it presents only one aspect of his musical world, the blues. Quote, some people, particularly critics, were saying I didn't swing enough. The record's producer wanted to give them a barrage of soul music, churchy, blues, swinging, earthy. I thought it over. I was born swinging and clapped my hands in church as a little boy, but I've grown up and I like to do things other than just swing. But blues can do more than just swing, so I agree." And so we begin with tensions and competing perspectives, and at a particular moment in time, on a particular project, with a project goal in mind we moderate toward agreement. Mingus was nothing if not passionate, but he's got to get the record composed, recorded, produced, not to mention conduct musicians of disparate temperaments and strengths to achieve at least a modicum of his vision. Jazz welcomes the immoderate, the intemperate, the individual, and isn't this in the service of a collective creativity? We celebrate Mingus or Coltrane or Miles Davis, but as our assistant producer and jazz pianist Rob Schoon might say, there's a whole lot of genius that never gets named. Today we welcome to our studios Aurelian Creutu, author of the recent book Faces of Moderation. Aurelian Creutu is professor in the Department of Political Science at Indiana University, Bloomington. He's also affiliated with the Russian and East European Institute, the Institute for European Studies, the Ostrom Workshop, and the Lilly School of Philanthropic Studies. His other books include A Virtue for Courageous Minds, Moderation in French Political Thought, 1748 to 1830, and Liberalism Under Siege, The Political Thought of the French Doctrinaires. Crew to welcome to Interchange. Thanks for having me. Aurelian, let's start out just running, shall we? Why write a book about moderation? 
I think it's the perfect time to write such a book today, and I, I don't think I need to say anything more than that. Um, the, <laughs> I hope you will, though. Uh, the book has been in, in the making for uh, for some time, but um, the editor, um, the publisher, and um, uh, my editor decided to bring it out just after the election. So we couldn't have had a better time to bring it out than the elections of last November. Uh, in a way, it's a time of great immoderation, and I don't, uh, I think, need to convince any listeners of that. Uh, we live uh, at a boiling point in our history. Um, of course, uh, we all tend to exaggerate the tensions and the polarization. Uh, probably um, the 1960s were, um, you know, a time of uh, greater tensions. But uh, we 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 live today at 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 a juncture in time where I think there is more speed in the way in which technological change cha uh, affects our way of life. And uh, just teaching as a professor at Indiana University and seeing what's going on uh, on campuses around the nation, I see a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of, uh, um, let's say, black and white thinking. And uh, all this, I think, uh, calls for um, um, a disp dispassionate or passionate at the same time reflection on moderation. Mm. So, yeah, I think you note throughout that it's a baggy subject, right? Moderation is something that might be hard to pin down and requires uh, usually context to understand. But let's try, if we can, to give it a, a broad definition. Well, it is uh, first and foremost uh, a virtue. It's not... Uh, Fundamental. It's not an ultimate virtue like faith, hope, and love, but it's a cardinal virtue like prudence, moderation, temperance. So philosophers have talked for a long time about moderation. The author that I would refer to here is Aristotle, of course, in the Nicomachean Ethics. He equates moderation with practical wisdom. So that's one possible definition of moderation, knowing when to say what, how, in relation to what aspects and, and in what what tone, in what mode. So that's one, practical wisdom. The other way is uh, a middle between the extremes, and this is an also a classical understanding of moderation. Um, there is a, a, a wide range of interpretation of moderation as the middle point between the extremes, but um, this is not the definition that I, I uh, end up um, espousing in, in my work. I think that uh, moderates can be uh, found on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. They don't have to be in the middle, in a lukewarm center. So I would uh, defend moderation as a form of trimming. And I use the word uh, carefully here. It's a nautical metaphor. It comes from sailing. To trim the sails of a ship means to trim the sails in such a way that you prevent the ship from capsizing. And that is exactly what moderates do. They trim the sails of the ship of the state in order to prevent the ship of the state from capsizing. And uh, this, again, uh, requires that moderates sometimes lean to the left, sometimes to the right, uh, depending, again, on the circumstances. So that's my favorite definition of moderation, as keeping the balance. Mm. That's what trimming is all about, keeping the balance. Okay, so moderation mostly uh, in the book is, is d uh, dealing with trimming, trying to understand how to keep the ship of state floating, I suppose. Uh, yes, and there is, so I began by ha outlining some ethical components mm -hmm. of moderation. Moderation is practical wisdom, mm -hmm. uh, moderation is temperance, uh, self-restraint, but there is also an institutional component of moderation. Mm -hmm. Moderation is not just a virtue. There are, there are some institutions that 
translate into practice this virtue. And uh, if we look, for example, at the constitutional um, engineering that went into the Constitutional Convention and Philadelphia, you have a pretty good idea of what moderation is all about. It's about balance of powers, it's about separation of powers, but it's also about uh, executive veto, two chambers, mm -hmm. uh, Senate and the House of Representatives and uh, Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's preventing powers from um, overreaching, number one, and from acquiring a position of absolute superiority. So mm -hmm. there is an institutional component that is usually neglected in favor of uh, uh, the ethical component of moderation. Mm. Uh, currently, we have 32 or so state legislatures that are Republican-controlled. We've got a Republican-controlled presidency, a Republican-controlled Supreme Court, Republican-controlled nearly everything, right? Uh, so we're a little bit out of balance then. We, we are out of balance. If you look at the map, uh, the electoral map of the country, uh, that's the first uh, out of balance uh, mm -hmm. uh, thing that I would bring to our attention. Um, balance is good for many reasons. Divided government is different from balance. Mm -hmm. But we could talk about divided government. Sometimes having a, you know, one of the houses or the White House in the hands of one party and the other ones controlling the other ones is actually a good thing because they tend to keep each other in check. Mm -hmm. And we see today that the balance comes probably from the judicial power, which is uh, usually seen as the weakest of the three powers. Mm -hmm. So there is still balance, I would say. Um, the electoral map is out of balance. It's been like this for many, many years sure. now. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the electoral map in 2004. It was uh, almost as red as today. <laughs> uh, and uh, in a way, I think uh, that's something that w it will take years to, to change. Mm -hmm. Now, we also assume that the ship of state is something we want to be on within this definition. I think that the ship of state has to be... Uh, uh, marching has to be sailing somewhere. So it, there's also a direction that is implied in here. It's mm -hmm. not just a static view. The ship of the state is, you know, is, on, is at sea, en mm -hmm. route to some destination. <laughs> and that destination changes. Mm -hmm. So it's not a static dimension. And uh, that's why I think uh, there is no algorithm for, uh, for moderation because uh, uh, keeping the balance itself um, is, um, is difficult to describe with the exact um, instruments. Uh, there's no, uh, no formula for keeping the balance. Sometimes keeping the balance meaning that you have to defend a certain position that you might not have defended f five, ten years earlier. Mm. So uh, the moderate, uh, as you say before, I think you tried to go throughout the book in a way in which the moderate isn't necessarily opportunistic but might be seen as opportunistic. The moderate might be a waffler if we see them uh, as a waffler. But you say that the moderate needs to be able to make uh, perhaps uh, decisions that even his, own, his or her own party might uh, go against. Uh, I think so. That's why the, the, it would be difficult to think about a party of moderates because a party requires uh, ideological conformity mm -hmm. and some form of discipline. Moderates are, by definition, in my view, independent spirits, mm. and they can probably not form a party of moderates. Mm. But there are, let's say, caucuses of moderates mm -hmm. in both parties that could come to mutual agreements and understanding, and uh, uh, I think that has happened throughout history, uh, less so today. But uh, in a way, um, I would say that uh, to be a moderate is a difficult thing because mm -hmm. you, you tend to swim against the current. Um, there is a tendency towards ideological conformity within political parties today, both parties, I should add. Um, but uh, there has been also a, a great pressure on the few moderates in the Republican Party lately um, 
in their electoral in the primaries uh, mm-hmm. in the electoral cycle uh, they've been trying they've been um, uh, let's say challenged uh, we saw one of them in our own state uh, mm-hmm. senator luger was challenged by richard murdoch in 2012 and he lost uh, so th- there is a kind of uh, complex set of challenges that moderates are facing from mm. the, within their own parties from public opinion because their thinking is not black and white right. and therefore people long for ideological purity and uh, shortcuts mm. we don't have time to for nuance <laughs> right there not even in the show right it's only an hour this is doug storm on interchange my guest is aurelian Krayutu, professor in the department of political science at indiana university bloomington author of the recently excuse me excuse me author most recently of faces of moderation the art of balance in an age of extremes again so i mentioned that the the political landscape is uh, pretty thoroughly uh, Republican at this point in terms of our uh, state houses and our federal government as well. So in what way would moderates be useful in this situation? Is there is there a way that there's a Republican moderate that can help fix that that particular balance? Are we going in the wrong direction because we're not balanced? Uh, you know, this, this is an interesting, difficult time. We talk about extremes, but again, we've been riding a Republican-dominated uh, political landscape for quite a long, uh, quite a long time now. That's true. At the same time, I would add that uh, the configuration of the political scene changes quickly. Nothing is forever in politics, for sure, mm-hmm. and in America, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, I would want to say here that, for example, even on the most difficult issues, it doesn't take a lot a lot of independent, let's say, moderate voices in this case to tilt the balance in one way or the, or the other. Healthcare, for example, reform, which is a big topic today, it wouldn't take more than four moderate voices to step in and um, make a make a change mm-hmm. and make make a difference at the same time. Um, so I wouldn't look for uh, a lot of of these voices, but um, I would like to see, uh, as you probably would too, uh, I like to see those voices uh, making a stand for moderation mm-hmm. in a principled way. There is a vision behind it. It's not that they they are looking to to change something for the sake of electoral gain. There is a vision behind it. And I think that vision is to be articulated pretty clearly in order for people to understand that what moderates can do is not just to affect the balance of power, which they can, though it seems today that's not that simple, Mm -hmm. but it's it's also to the benefit of the community at large. Mm. Now, uh, before we go to our first break, let's uh, detail uh, quickly or briefly sketch or outline the the um, thinkers you use in your book to uh, to kind of help us guide guide us through moderation in its different guises, its different phases. We can just list them and, and give a little sketch. Well, there are quite a few. Uh, the first one and my probably uh, my favorite one is Raymond Daron. Mm-hmm. His dates were 1905-1983. Aron was a lone figure in French uh, political and intellectual life in the 1950s and 60s who uh, stood for what we call today liberalism. He started his career on the left and was seen on the right, but actually he he occupied a lone center in uh, French political life, a distinguished sociologist um, who taught at Sorbonne and then Collège de France, uh, most famous for his book, The Opium of the Intellectuals. Mm and uh, the second author uh, is um, a Oxford Don, um, 
Isaiah Berlin, 1909-1997. Uh, Berlin came from Russia. He was born in Petrograd, and uh, excuse me, he came from Riga, and then he moved to Petrograd. Mm-hmm. He witnessed the uh, Russian Revolution, and he he kept uh, an interest in uh, Russian affairs throughout his life. Uh, he was uh, f- most famous for putting forward a distinction between two types of liberty, negative and positive liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, next one is a politician in Italy, Norberto Bobbio, a man of the left, uh, who actually was engaged throughout his own life, uh, 1909-2004, um, in a, uh, a long dialogue with the communists and the liberals. He tried to convince the Italian communists of the benefits of espousing constitutionalism and limited government. Um, Bobbio was uh, a legal um, scholar at the University of Turin. Uh, and then I, I turned to a, a British philosopher, a conservative one, uh, Michael Oakeshott, um, most famous for his critique of rationalism in politics. Uh, he uh, was um, um, an interesting figure, uh, a romantic soul uh, in a conservative uh, a body, as if, if I may say so. <laughs> um, I like his distinction between two types of politics, politics of faith and politics of skepticism. And finally, I thought that uh, the book should have a uh, chapter on um, Eastern Europe somehow, uh, not only because I'm Romanian, but I think the East Europeans can teach something valuable uh, um, the rest of the world uh, about the virtues of liberal democracy. And I, I wanted to write about Adam Michnik in Poland. Michnik was instrumental in uh, the fall of communism in Poland. He's the only one alive of my characters. Mm. And uh, he was born in 1946. He was in prison five times during communism. And he's the editor today of the influential Gazeta Wyborcza uh, in uh, in Warsaw, in Poland. Uh, he was uh, very close to Lech Wałęsa, and they uh, uh, were part of the famous solidarity movement that brought down communism in 1989 in Poland. Mm. Well, uh, let's take a break before we talk about any any of them in particular. All things in moderation here on Interchange. Uh, We might question that there is no moderation without extremes, no center without circumference, perhaps. In our jazz at the top of the hour, Mingus holds the center and moderates the tensions. But the, the thing we might focus on is that moderators have to make choices, too, and we have to see what they're all about. So it's time for a break. We'll listen to Dollar Brand by Abdullah Ibrahim, performing in 1968 at the Kongsberg Jazz Festival in Norway. More with Aurelian Krayutu on the faces of moderation when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. That was Abdullah Ibrahim performing Dollar Brand in 1968 in Norway at the Kongsberg Jazz Festival. Our show today, Passion Against Extremes, attempts to define that elusive political virtue, moderation. My guest is Aurelian Krayutu, professor of political science at Indiana University, Bloomington. His most recent book, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is Faces of Moderation. In it, he highlights the political thinking of men he thinks of as moderates or having some moderate tendencies at least. One of those uh, we outlined before, the end, the close of the book, for the most part, uh, Adam Michnik. Um, 1968 was the uh, the year of the song that we just heard. Uh, Aurelian, 1968 is a year of turmoil as well, right? Uh, a year of special significance, perhaps, to, to Michnik as well? I think so. And um, Michnik was to serve a f- his first time in prison not soon, uh, uh, qu- quite soon after 1968. He uh, was um, to rise uh, in the anti-communist circles in Poland uh, in the early 70s. And by 1976, we find him involved in the Committee for the Defense of Workers that actually led to the formation of the Solidarity Movement in August 1980. Mm. Uh, Michnik is an interesting example for anyone studying moderation because he is an immoderate person, first of all. Um, Michnik actually visited Bloomington twice at the invitation of one of my colleagues here, uh, Jeff Isaac, and I had the privilege of meeting him only once, uh, but it was enough to realize that uh, he's not, as a person, a moderate one. Politically speaking, he's the incarnation of political moderation, and If before 1989 he was very anti-communist in his attitude, uh, again, he served five five terms in prison, after 1989 he surprised his many friends uh, with uh, his decision to uh, actually enter into a dialogue with Wojciech Jaruzelski, who was the former uh, leader of the Communist Party in Poland. Um, So this was 1991, and many of his uh, former friends were appalled by his decision to to um, uh, enter in a dialogue with someone whom they saw as as the incarnation of evil, and Michnik refused that. And subsequently, Michnik thought that any calls for lustration in Poland were to be taken with a grain of salt, and he opposed them because he thought that uh, they would not be productive in in the long term. So here we have someone who is vehemently anti-communist before 89, and then... Mm becomes uh, a proponent of a politics of dialogue with his uh, former Mm. uh, opponents. What is lustration? Lustration is a policy that uh, prevents uh, former communist uh, uh, officials from running for political office. Something of a purge? It's uh, it's a purge without condemnation, Mm. yes. Mm. Okay. So there are essays I can read throughout to try to understand what each of these these men may have said in those particular essays at that particular time. And a part of this conversation uh, is about those particularities frequently, right? And the moderate does seem to be the person that, that you want to imagine is able to continually say things that are different than the thing he said or she said before. Now, she is a, I'm using she there because I think there's one, you mentioned Judith Schlar, is that right, in the book? And that's the only I think the only female voice in the book. Judith Clark is the only female. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, how is it that that we're able to understand moderation through these particular men? Um, if they're, you know, if they're sort of always, if that's, if, is that the only definition that they will trim? They will say what they need to say at a certain time or what they think makes the ship of state run or what they think works in that particular moment. Uh, Miknik may be worth talking about simply because of uh, Poland um, and sort of struggling against a very a very real 
experience with uh, fascism, with Nazism, and and moving into a world in which uh, they try to discover, uh, I suppose, democracy, yes? Yeah. Uh, so how is it that we're able to understand moderation in in these kinds of contexts? I do uh, outline in the epilogue of the book a mm-hmm. few meta-narratives that I, I like to return to now. Uh, one of them is that all of these thinkers actually offer us concrete examples of what I call thinking politically as opposed to thinking ideologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking ideologically means, in a nutshell, thinking by the book. You have a, a set of principles that you mm-hmm. absolutely oppose or absolutely endorse. Well, let's name a couple. Uh, if you're a communist, this book, your book is fairly anti-communist, right? It's, uh, you, it's, it's the bugbear throughout. Yeah, you can yeah. say free market. Uh, free market to, is an ideology as well? Free market could, be legal, an sure, ideolo- sure. An, uh, could lead to an ideolo- mm-hmm. ideological stance. Anti-free market could lead to an anti-ideological mm-hmm. stance. Uh, any intervention of the state is good or any intervention of the state is bad, depending on mm-hmm. what school you you uh, Okay. Uh, decentralization is good or decentralization is, mm-hmm. is bad again depending on which school uh, you endorse so th- that that is a mark of uh, of their i think uh, moderation the fact that they were able to think politically and not ideologically uh, as a matter of fact uh, um, uh, the epilogue of the book is from Raymond Aron, and he says this, having political opinions is not a matter of having an ideology once for all. It is a question of taking the right decisions in changing circumstances. Mm. It's a very Aristotelian uh, sentence here, because basically it says that you can, for example, be uh, on this side of of the um, uh, healthcare debate one day and on that side of the immigration. You don't have to be consistent necessarily in being on the left or on the right all the mm-hmm. time on each of these issues. That's what I think uh, can be defined as thinking politically, I not ideologically, the, the pragmatically. Question, if yeah, wish. so the question within that space is to, un- is to try to understand uh, not thinking, like thinking politically or thinking um, in policy terms or thinking about certain uh, economic decisions, things of that nature, as, as we talk here about politics and government as much as anything else, right? Rather than saying you're on one side of immigration or the other side of immigration, I don't like immigrants, I do like immigrants, but and rather the there's end of a the policy. Discussion. Yeah, there's a policy that you want to make that says immigration policy can be this, but the effects and consequences of immigration policy done this way. Also, get your facts right. One of the sure. things that I learned from uh, Aaron is the fact that for three decades, he was an academic, but also he wrote twice a week editorials, mm-hmm. first for uh, Le Figaro and then for L'Express. Now, try, I challenge all, any of my colleagues, try to, ch- to write editorials twice a week for 31 years, mm-hmm. as Aaron did, mm-hmm. without saying many stupid things. I, <laughs> I, I have read a part of his editorials, which are collected, and they are remarkable because the man got, tried to the best as he could in the 1950s, 60s, there was no internet, to get the facts right. Mm-hmm. And starting from an accurate understanding of reality, then you draw your own conclusion the best you can, again, mm-hmm. without blinders. So I, I find that refreshing. In, in many ways, um, Michnik is the same. Michnik um, always tried to get the facts right, and from the facts, draw the conclusions that suited the circumstances in which he found himself. Aurelian Crave, too, is with us. He's written a book, Attempting to Frame Moderation as a Useful and Perhaps Necessary Political Virtue 
in this age of extremes. Uh, this age of extremes has brought the term intersectionality into popular academic and media lexicons, I think. Um, is intersectionality a kind of moderation, do you think, where multiple groups are trying to understand each other and, and get the power structure to recognize them? I'm not so sure about that. Um, this is a term with which I'm kind of uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, intersectionality? Intersectionality, okay. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it, I'm not sure exactly what. It, I, I tend to, uh, to, uh, to believe that it's, uh, um, it's a synonym for something, but I'm not sure exactly what that is. Mm. You, you're not sure, but it, it could be a synonym for something? It could be a synonym for, uh, let's say, a quest for more inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it's, if it's taken as a synonym for dialogue mm-hmm. um, uh, and um, civility, uh, that, that would be a synonym for moderation as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, we, we live in a world, I think, that, that probably most of your, uh, at least a Micnick for, for, for sure, um, would have to understand that power structures beg of us to confront them sometimes when they're in our face and not letting us be free. Uh, this is, I think, the, the point of intersectionality frequently, the point of black power movements, things of that nature. It's hard to imagine, me anyway, it's hard to imagine a moderate perspective when it comes to trying to struggle against the force of the police state, let's say. And, and we have one in certain of our demographics here in this country. It's interesting, the way in which you phrased, you framed the question and mm-hmm. you phrased it uh, reminds me of a question that was posed to me uh, when I presented uh, a draft of this book. Uh, what it is not a good time to espouse moderation? And certainly there is in history, there is uh, quite a range of moments, I would say, when um, it makes little sense to be moderate. Moderation in the 1950s in the, in the south uh, of the United States, certainly moderation was used then by... Uh, um, uh, racists in order to prevent the m- m- very necessary reforms, the Civil Act sure. movement. Um, so um, I wouldn't um, um, deny that there are times where moderation is not a virtue, and uh, I've w- I w- I always wondered whether one could oppose criminal systems such as communist regimes in former Soviet Union with a moderate policy. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn th- didn't think that was possible. Andrei Saharov, on the other hand, thought it was possible, and he fought for the rights, uh, rights of uh, uh, individuals. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly where I stand on when it is a good time and when it is not a good time to espouse moderation. But I think that uh, uh, one, one tendency that I see uh, among those who prefer this talk about intersectionality is to see power everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, a, uh, it is a, uh, an idea inspired from the work of uh, Michel Foucault. And uh, I must confess that while power is an important component of our lives, I don't see at least the, the life that I live as uh, permeated by relations of power. There are many interstices in, in spaces where, uh, you know, we are free from uh, in, interference of uh, power structures. Uh, this is not to say that uh, we are always free of those, but uh, I, I think that uh, too much of an obsession with, with power can be an immoderate thing. Well, I think that's difficult. I mean, obviously, you and I sit here, and we're, we're probably not inundated with worry about power structures. I had the police chief in here one time, and I felt that I should confront him about his power structure over me, right? He carries a gun. I don't. Uh, he has authority. I don't. The, the police car scares me. He scares me. Not, not looking at him as I sat here and talked to him. He said, fine, fellow. But his, his relationship to me is one of power and one in which I will lose 
any argument, right? There, is a, there isn't a moderate space for me except to shut up and let him do what he wants to do. I uh, come... I lived 27 years of my uh, early life in a communist country. And mm-hmm. that, if you want to, to know about power, <laughs> that's a good example to look at. Right. Uh, you go to uh, uh, any clerk, any office uh, to pay your bills, and, and that's where you have power because you are made to feel little, right. small, right. humiliated. Well, I think that is the point of, of a lot of the black power movement and a lot of uh, the black liberation movement now, too, is that that is exactly how they feel most of the time in, in, in their situation in, in their communities. The, the difficult thing is that uh, w- we need to have empathy for people who feel that way, and that, that thing needs to be cultivated properly through dialogue, and mm-hmm. I think that that's a very important point. I like we br- keep bringing it back to dialogue, and, and Micknick, that's one of his particular uh, 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 essays, right? Uh, what is dialogue? Uh, I was reading a book about black power. Uh, it's called Black Against Empire, and it focuses mostly on the Black Panther Party, and one of the the ta- tactics or uh, of Huey P. Newton in California was to learn as much as he could about gun laws in California. So when the cops pulled him over, he could he could have a gun. It was legal to have a gun. It was legal to have it a certain way. It had to be had to be visible. Um, so he could have a gun, and the cops would be like, "I'm going to pull you over and take his gun out." And they'd be like, oh, maybe I won't bother this guy. So Black Panthers uh, generally, I think, in that particular situation, right, they, they, they had this sense of I can't argue with power in, in, in a particular uh, perhaps dialogic way unless, unless we call that a dialogue. Right, which it doesn't seem like that's a dialogue necessarily, right? No, it's not. A dialogue. Yeah, so um, it's it's the the kind of thing that I guess you deny the compromise there. Somebody has to; they both have to go back to their sides and 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 prefer to let be, perhaps. Well, in in Michnik's case, um, I think the politics of dialogue means that you have to have two sides that listen to each other mm-hmm. and are willing to to listen. And, right. and make reasonable compromises. You can't have dialogue with one. Right. Well, it's plausible. That's, again, the argument from black power is that we can't talk to the state. That, that we, we will not be listened to. I'm not sure in, you know, that always uh, there is this um, disponibility and openness to dialogue, um, even when people claim that they're open to dialogue. And uh, to, to be engaged in dialogue is a difficult thing. First of all, you need to... Uh, Admit that uh, you are not the um, um, owner of truth, uh, as <laughs> right, it were, right. and uh, you may be uh, wrong, and that you are fallible. Secondly, you have to uh, uh, really be interested in what the other has to say, mm. and you have to get your facts right. Number three, and and those those things are are not always difficult. We we prefer monologue to dialogue, and. Uh, I, I'm, I'm guilty as charged uh, sometimes. <laughs> Me too, probably, right? Uh, uh, it's time for another break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our music will be Eric Dolphy's Hat and Beard off of the 1964 album Out to Lunch. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. That was Eric Dolphy's Hat and Beard. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Passion Against Extremes, and my guest is Aurelian Krayutu, author of Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes. Uh, before we go on to the, the incident here on campus in April with Char- Charles Murray, uh, I did want to, um, I just did want to note that, uh, to, that I do, uh, I did appreciate the book quite a bit. I do like the, the Micnick chapter, chapter. For me, um, I didn't know much about these particular uh, characters generally. Um, I might have w- wanted a little bit more of their adversaries, perhaps, um, uh, within the book, so I could quite... I had to do a lot of personal research on my own, which I'm lazy, Aurelian, so... <laughs> I appreciate uh, <laughs> so, the I hate to have to be lazy, but uh, I, I wanted to... Uh, there was something that interested me, and I just wanted to say it because I thought it was fascinating. The book has uh, uh, epigraphs for each chapter as well, which I like uh, as well. Uh, p- uh, prologue, and the chapters, so they, they have their own uh, epigraphs to the chapters. But the Micnick chapter does not have an uh, epigraph from Micnick. The others have their own epigraph, right? So uh, Aaron has his own epigraph, uh, Bobbio has his own, etc. of Berlin. But Micnick has one, um, who is it by? Uh, Victor Vladimir, Vladimir Bukowski. Vladimir. Now, why, why is that? Is that, a, that a, an intentional thing, not to give Micnick a quote there at the beginning, or...? Now that you are asking uh, for this, I, I should probably come up with a more intelligent <laughs> answer. But frankly, I liked I liked Bukowski's uh, uh, witty uh, aphorism. We are n- neither from the left camp nor from the right camp. We are from the concentration camp, because in a way, in a way, um, uh, it um, it tells Michnik's story as well. It's ah. it's tough to say Michnik is, is is a man of the left. Only he was. Uh, has been at least, or on the right, uh, he has been partly. Uh, he he comes from uh, from a past that uh, uh, has been very troubled. Uh, Bukowski, by the way, um, e- emigrated from the former Soviet Union. He lives in the United Kingdom right now. Right. Um, I, I looked him up too, just because I, again it struck me as strange, right, uh, or at least different than the rest, uh, the rest of them, right. So mm-hmm. um, he he appears more clearly a man of the conservative. Mm-hmm. side of things right uh, the uh he's a fellow at, uh, at cato or is that how you say that you say cato I cato know. i guess okay and uh he I was awarded the truman reagan model uh, medal of freedom by the victims of communism memorial foundation uh so he he slots a little bit further into the right than micknick would right ah probably so probably so yeah. i thought it was a witty aphorism it's witty i would be good on a t-shirt uh i no, I, I think so. <laughs> well, well, maybe I shouldn't wear concentration camp things on but, T-shirts. Um, but Bukowski actually did serve time in uh, in prison as well, so he should mm. be, uh, uh, you know, uh, acknowledged for what he is a survivor of sorts. Oh, sure, sure. And I, I think it's part of the problem of having conversations is that these are lives that were lived in difficult circumstances frequently. Not all of them, of course, but uh, those quite, two in particular. Quite dark times. And yeah. when, when I started writing the book, I, I was saying to my friends, I'm going to write about the moderation in the 20th century. Someone said, uh, uh, laughing, uh, I said, it's going to be a very short book. <laughs> no and and it, is, it is not such a short book because all of these people really uh, fought with great courage in dark times. Yeah. And, um, well, uh, one thing that I, I think I read, it was George Kateb who wrote something about the, the sort of, uh, that, that every person 
person has value, right? Every person is measurable, and that every, even um, as you think about the the sort of largeness of a lot of these atrocities that we deal with, that e- the the imagination requires us to see each death, each life, each torture, each pain as as a supreme value in itself. Which is which is absolutely true. Uh, Kate, by the way, who was my teacher at Princeton, mm-hmm. uh, has been uh, at work on 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 di- human dignity, and mm-hmm. I think this is a, a, an important concept underlying. Uh, my research as well. Mm. But I would also say that the 20th century uh, has seen a, um, a record of, of uh, um, uh, crimes that is, uh, in my view, unprecedented in history. Yeah, in uh, a short period of time. Uh, yeah. Very short period yeah. of time. Uh, and, uh, you know, six million uh, uh, mm-hmm. lives lost in, uh, in the gas chambers in the Nazi Germany. And then uh, uh, roughly, uh, according to the Black Bullock of Communism, 100 million people, lives lost in, uh, uh, around the globe, uh, in China, most, right. of the, most of the... Well, it's hard to... Those, those are things that are, 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 again, fascinating when we look at statistics like that, uh, just because it's hard to sometimes characterize the ways in which people fall uh, to particular systems. Right. So, I mean, obviously, we can look at those. Those. those for, for me, the greatest strategy mm-hmm. occurred in uh, uh, Cambodia under mm-hmm. our own eyes. I mm-hmm. was alive, 1975, 1979. Mm-hmm. Pol Pot managed to kill sure. 1.5 million people in four years, three and a half, actually. Mm-hmm. That's a re- remarkable uh, yeah. number. And uh, the level of atrocities that were perpetrated in in, uh, in Cambodia under our own eyes after the end of the Vietnam War mm-hmm. uh, is uh, is a is a big stain on our historical memory. Right. Well, we have, of course, plenty of uh, culpability in those particular situations. Unfortunately. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Aurelian Krayutu, professor in the Department of Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington, author most recently of Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes. Uh, so we are uh, nearing the last bit of our show, and we should talk about the April um, issue uh, here uh, in Bloomington on the IU campus. Uh, we had uh, a protest uh, over uh, Charles Murray coming to speak. You want to set that up or tell us a little bit about that? Well, Charles Murray was uh, uh, invited here by a group of students affiliated uh, with American Enterprise Institute. There is a chapter on campus, which is not an official organization uh, on the IU campus, but it's an official uh, chapter of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a a respectable uh, think tank based in Washington. The conservative think tank. Conservative right. think tank mm-hmm. uh, on the right, and then you have the Brookings Institute on the left. I wouldn't say that. Brookings Institute is yeah, on, we on could call it centrist. If if you want I would to. say left of the center. Okay. If you wish, but right. uh, uh, th- the um, invitation was uh, um, launched by uh, again by the students uh, this semester. Uh, the program that I'm directing here at um, IU is uh, called the Tocqueville program, has mm-hmm. been I- interested in um, bringing to campus a number of speakers who can uh, help us understand what happened uh, in 2016 elections, mm-hmm. the Trump phenomenon, if right. I may call it this way. So we, we started with uh, Bill Crystal, uh, the e- executive editor of uh, the Weekly Standard in February. We had the roundtable on moderation and civility mm-hmm. in March with uh, Teresa Bejan and uh, myself and uh, two other colleagues, Jeff Isaac and Alan Wood, um, and Alex Smith from University of Warwick in the United Kingdom. And then we thought that uh, someone who wrote uh, the book Coming Apart in 2012, um, that kind of 
predicted the victory of Trump, if I may say so, uh, four years before it happened, would be a good um, um, addition to our list. Uh, so we joined uh, our efforts with, our, with the students and we uh, uh, were prepared to welcome uh, Charles Murray to campus. Uh, we were aware of the protests that had occurred at Middlebury College. Mm -hmm. We were also aware of the fact that uh, uh, Murray's book, Coming Apart, had been on the required reading list at Harvard University this semester in a class taught by Cornel West and Roberto Unger. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know who these people are, both are uh, major figures on the left. Um, Cornel West is uh, uh, the leading African-American public intellectual in the mm -hmm. country. Do we know why or how they taught it? I think they, they taught it in a serious way because mm -hmm. I looked at the, the list. There are five books, uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America, Michael Lind, The New American Nation, Cornell West, Democracy Matters, mm -hmm. Ungers, The Left Alternative, and uh, um, um, These books kind of rep rep represent their own particular political I think they perspective. Take, I think they, they are prepared to take seriously mm -hmm. uh, an analysis that uh, looks at the increasing fragmentation and polarization sure. of America because mm -hmm. this is what uh, coming apart is, is, right. is an analysis of what happened uh, in the last two decades in a white part of America. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that uh, you know, the analysis of the appearance of bubbles in America, that this is the main theme of, uh, of the book, mm -hmm. I think is something that should uh, anyone on the left sure. should be interested in. Well, the problem probably is that uh, I assume, and I'm pretty sure there would have been any number of books slash thinkers, uh, writers, uh, that probably could have delivered that particular perspective. I, I have not read Coming Apart. Okay, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, it's not just the problem, right? So it's okay for me to say, I'm going to imagine, and I don't have to imagine, I've read plenty of books on why Trump won. Right. There are lots of them, lots of perspectives, but uh, obviously dealing with white America and uh, some sort of uh, division in economic uh, perspective as well. Uh, you know, trying to, I guess, temper a racial division also. Um, but the question, I think, within this particular context is when you could probably get a valuable speaker uh, also that would say similar things or try to discern what happened in America with Trump. The choice was to go to Charles Murray, which has obviously and would have a, a, a baggage, to say the least. He had the baggage because of his one of his previous uh, 12 books, by the way, sure. uh, The Bell Curve, mm -hmm. um, uh, contains that uh, fragment that ends actually with a question mark that was singled out mm -hmm. uh, as an evidence of his uh, allegedly racist uh, and white nationalist views. Um, I'm not interested in defending Murray. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in the um, issue of tr the Trump phenomenon. Sure. And that was the, the invitation that we, we, um, we extended. Right. One interesting thing about, about this is that uh, some colleagues said, well, uh, you invited someone who is not an academic. This is someone with, again, 12 books published mm -hmm. by major presses and also with a PhD from MIT mm -hmm. and a BA from Harvard. So uh, that's, that's not the real... Um, uh, real critique. The other interesting thing, which probably the most in the interesting one, is the commitment to free speech. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm very sensitive to this issue because 
to uh, equate Murray with Milo Yanopoulos or um, Ann Coulter would be completely off of the subject. It's it's not the same thing. Uh, they they belong to two different worlds. The the last two are entertainers, mm-hmm. um, whereas um, Murray is a, um, a member of a respectable think tank in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, M- Murray was called to testify before Congress twice recently on issues that are related to the topics that we've been, we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. And again, this is someone who is taught at Harvard mm-hmm. uh, by two distinguished uh, left-wing uh, intellectuals. So we do have to begin to understand that the moderates and moderators and persons who are in charge of these types of programs have ways in which they measure the value of the people they bring in to speak. I, I'm, I'm reluctant to measure the value of, of, uh, of, of anyone whom we invite. Since this is a campus where many views are to be listened mm-hmm. to, I think that uh, you know we can invite uh, and we should invite people who defend views that we do not uh, agree with or sure. partly. Um, certainly, I would not endorse an invitation to people who come here and um, endorse, uh, let's say, um, uh, racist, uh, misogynist, and whatever other views. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, I think that the commitment to, to pluralism and diversity must be taken seriously. Sure. And I, I've seen the same remarks made by some of my colleagues with regard to the invitation of Bill Crystal mm-hmm. uh, two mm-hmm. months prior to, sure. to Murray. And, and that's, the, that's the event that we fully organized. That was in February. That was yeah. in February. Mm-hmm. And uh, Crystal is a very respectable. By the way, none of these thinkers, none, none of these uh, 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 individuals, neither Crystal nor Murray, have endorsed Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, one interesting thing is that uh, after the invitation here, after the talk, actually it was on April 15th, New York Times published an interesting article. Uh, two professors from Cornell University sent uh, his uh, talk uh, anonymously to others to rate it from 1 to 10, mm. uh, from uh, 1 very liberal to 10 very conservative and it came back at 5.1, which is middle of the road. So this is a man who who endorses universal guaranteed basic income and gay marriage. He's he's labeled a conservative. (laughs) Well, there are all sorts of ways in which we we trim our particular positions as well, I think, in in the academic world also. So the question of crystal is an interesting one, too. So you you run this particular uh, 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 colloquium. Are you you primarily in charge of inviting people to that particular series? I'm... uh I'm part of a group the there. The lecture series. The, the Tocqueville lecture the series o- is, part, is part of the uh, is is co-sponsored is co-sponsored by uh, by the Ostrom mm-hmm, workshop. But mm-hmm. uh, basically, the Tocqueville program is part of the Lilly School of Philanthropy mm-hmm. now, oh, okay. which is in uh, at IUPUI. So, but these, uh, if I just look, at, if I just took a snapshot of the people invited to the to the lecture series, to the colloquium, to the workshops, there uh, seems to me they're of a piece. Well, one, it's Ostrom, which is an economic focus. Right? Right for mm-hmm. the most part, but uh, as far as I can tell, they're primarily conservative. They're primarily uh, concerned with the way um, the way you can organize a kind of, uh, I guess, a financial as an economic aspect of how to manage populations, things of that na- nature. So if we just look at who's come, right? So you have Bill mm-hmm. Crystal is uh, the, obviously very conservative, very uh, right wing, never never Trump campaign. Well, so uh, I don't know what to say about that. So you can, everybody can dislike Trump. I mean, it's, it doesn't make you not a conservative or not believe in some of the things I'm sure Trump believes in as well. So uh, you have Brian Anderson came, uh, uh, who actually spoke on 
Raymond Aron, right? Yes, uh, he wrote the book on Raymond Aron. Right. Um, so he uh, is from, uh, I believe, the Manhattan Institute Manhattan for Institute Policy in Research, New York. also yeah. a conservative think tank. Bill Crystal on the board of trustees yeah. of that particular think tank. So we have all sorts of these issues within those uh, that that lecture series. That seems to me that they're primarily uh, from that spectrum, right? Okay, so, not really. So let, let me sure, let me sure. let me add a few names here. Twenty twelve, oh, sure. November twenty twelve. Do you know who was uh, November twenty twelve? November twenty twelve. That's five this years is ago? five years ago. <laughs> we had in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. We paid nothing because we couldn't pen, paid him because of some visa problems. Yanis Varoufakis. Do you know who Yanis no, Varoufakis is? Mm-hmm. Yanis Varoufakis was the Minister of Finance in the Syriza government, the first Minister of Finance oh, uh-huh, in the sure. Syriza government, yeah, yeah. Okay. who is now Name one of the well, leading sure. figures on the left in Europe. Sure. Varoufakis came here in a talk that was sponsored by the Tocqueville program. Mm-hmm. He talked about the challenges of democracy in the 21st century. And in the audience, there were two professors, me and the other colleague who co-invited him, Professor Frank Hess, who directs the Modern Greek program, and two graduate students. Mm-hmm. That's it. Today, if you were to bring Yanis Varoufakis to Bloomington, we have to pay $30,000. Mm. Okay. <laughs> we, had, we had in 2012 uh, Jonathan Israel from the Institute mm. for Advanced Study, who is the leading scholar of Back the... Back in 2012, what's happened? Sorry, back what? in 2012? 2012, though. We don't need to go through them all, so I'll look up that. We don't have time. No, no, I know. I'm no, no, I'm just saying yeah, that, yeah. that in, in 2012, Varoufakis talked about democracy. Ah, okay. All right. And, all right. and uh, none of my colleagues who then uh, criticized me for bringing conservative speakers were in the audience to listen mm. to Yanis Varoufakis. Varoufakis is an extraordinary figure on the left. Mm, okay. Jonathan Israel, Institute for Advanced Study, the leading either. scholar of the Enlightenment, author of ma- major books on the radical Enlightenment. Mm. So, okay. so we are not bringing only conservative people. And actually, this is one of my, my, uh, my desires. We want to bring next year to Bloomington uh, Cornell West from the left and Robert George from Princeton on the right. Well, they, they like to come together. That would be nice. But uh, we can talk about that later. It's, uh, it's uh, certainly an, an issue to take up, I suppose. That's our show. We'll go out with Thelonious Monk's Ugly Beauty. Thanks to Aurelian Kraytu, professor in the Department of Political Science at Indiana University, Bloomington, author most recently of Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes, published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you for being with us, Aurelian. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. A reminder, you can find this program along with other interchange programs available for podcasts at our website, wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Feel free to send us an email also. Our address, interchange at wfhb.org. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Joe Crawford, executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.
Thank you.